You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. morning. So glad you were here at Grace Community Church this morning. My name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder here at Grace. I just want to mention two or three things really quickly before I jump into Isaiah. Uh, chapter one first is, it's already been mentioned, time or two, discovery lunch. After the service, for those of you who are just uh, been coming to Grace for two or three weeks, two or three months, even if you're have been here for a year or two, and you don't really know a whole lot about the people of the church, please stay for Discovery Lunch. I, I want to encourage uh, students in particular, look, if, if you're going to be here for any length of time, you just need to engage. We want you to engage, be a part of our family, not just show up on Sunday. So today's the first step in that. Please stay uh, for lunch. We have pizza uh, afterwards. Um, we have, all of our elders will be staying, our staff. We'd love to get to know you. That'll give you a chance to get to know some of our, our uh, leaders here at the church. Then next Sunday morning, we're going to affirm uh, the selections that the elders were asking you to affirm the selections that the elders made based on nominations from uh, the church and our observation of of guys and, and stage of life and things that are available right now. John Bart, Ben Grumbach, Ben McGuire, and Jason Woodall are presented as those who we would like to see serve and uh, as deacons at Grace Community Church. There is so much going on at the church, and we need more people who are, are, are officially ordained into that ministry. So we're going to ask you next week, look in your bulletin. It'll show you the process if you are a member of Grace, you probably have done this before and you know what it's about. Then also, Ricky Lee, who was sharing just a few minutes ago. I'm always worried Ricky's going to say, we want you to pray and we want you to give. But if you can only do one, we'd like for you to give. I'm always worried about Ricky doing that. But he never does it. So, just kidding. If you look, Ricky is a good communicator. You see that, right? If you were here two weeks ago... You know that he is a gifted preacher of God's word. And if you work with Ricky at any level, if you're in youth ministry, you're on the staff, you work with him in other areas, you know that Ricky is a godly man. And April is a godly woman. And next Sunday morning, it is our privilege to ordain Ricky Lee officially to to the ministry of the gospel. So we're going to do that, probably take a little bit of a break from Isaiah 1. Going to ask when we ordain Ricky, just so you'll know, those of you who is, have served as elders at Grace Community in the past and are not currently serving, we'll ask you to come forward. We'll have a couple of uh, invited guests, including my son, Michael, who's preaching three times this morning at uh, Alliance Bible Fellowship in Boone. But Michael will be here next Sunday morning and uh, as a part of that group that's going to be encouraging Ricky in these early days of ministry. We're so excited about that. Look, there, there is all kinds of good news for next Sunday morning. And speaking of good news, I have some good news and some bad news. Which do you want first? 
How do you typically answer that query when someone says to you, I've got good news and I've got bad news? What? Look, I usually ask for the bad news first because I want it to end with the good news. Some people tell the good news first so that they can sort of soften the impact of the bad news. I mean, you know, it's like some of you might call your parents and say, Mom and Dad, got great news about the car. The airbags work. You know? and so, and so you've sort of softened the blow, well, or uh, gotten yourself into more trouble. I love that commercial where the guy's trying to explain to his parents about the forgiveness accident. Four, day, four weeks without the car, okay. I mean, it just goes right back. So. Um, <clears throat> we're just getting going in our study of the book of Isaiah. And there is good news and there is bad news. Um, in Isaiah's prophecy, the bad news and the good news are almost on the heels of one another. It's almost like you have two readers, like, like Sarah and Kerrigan read so beautifully last week. But it's almost like one is reading over top of the other. It's, you can't get away from one before the other is in play. Uh, it, it will not take you long to realize that the bad news outweighs the good news in Isaiah. But you will also discover... That the good news is exceedingly good. <clears throat> Outrageously good, in fact. And the darkness of the bad makes the light of the good news even more meaningful and even more greatly appreciated. <clears throat> in fact, without facing the bad news of God's judgment on sin... There would be no desire nor sense of need for God's gracious forgiveness that comes with our repentance and trust in God's promises. Isn't it interesting how our society goes back and forth different ways? And, and, and people who say, look, no judgment, no judgment is necessary, end up being ex extremely harsh judges. There's right and wrong in the universe. There is good and evil in the universe, but above all, there is God in the universe and, and, and fallen man, fallen creatures <clears throat> who are spirit beings, Satan and his crew. But ultimately, everyone has to deal with God. And don't think of his words of judgment as being only, well, some kind of God that, no, don't. Understand that without knowing what God expects of us and what the consequences are of not trusting him, we're in a heap of trouble. So, so do you tend to think of, of the God of the Old Testament as an <clears throat> angry and judgmental God while the New Testament God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is compassionate and forgiving? You wouldn't be alone in, in thinking in such a way. In fact, I think probably all of us have a little bit of tendency. When we go to the Old Testament, we're thinking, oh boy, here we go. You know, buckle up because this is going to be tough. And then we get to the New Testament and it's just kind of like, ah, sweetness and light. And we're expecting that. But what, even those of us who play, pay close attention feel like this. Look, I, I know we all tend to think that way, but God is the same as he has always been. There is bountiful grace in the Old Testament. And there are severe warnings of judgment in the New Testament that equal anything said in the Old Testament. And so that's just one reason to study Isaiah. 
There are a couple things I want to say before we jump into Isaiah 1. And by the way, uh, the home group leaders are using a book uh, of sermons, really. It's a collection of sermons by Ray Ortland Jr., who is just awesome. Preacher of the Word of God. And he has four chapters, four sermons on Isaiah 1. We're doing this in one day, so hang in there. It's important that you stay with it as much as you possibly can the whole way. And there are a couple things I want to mention in in front, though, that will sort of help us when we get there. First, there are are numerous geopolitical references in Isaiah that, when understood, help bring the truth of the book into focus and into the 21st century church. Simply understanding the context of Isaiah often just makes the truth there come alive, jump off the page. There's a whole lot of that in Scripture. So when you think, look, I just want the Bible, please don't bother me with context. When you know the context in which a a passage was written, sometimes it it just sort of helps it uh, come alive for you. The challenge for us, though, is that deciphering all the nations and alliances and wars of the 8th century B.C. and beyond is a very tall order. Uh, Those of us who will preach during this series will do our very best to help you make sense of of most of what we will see in Isaiah uh, as we find it. You'll you'll notice that Isaiah 1 is addressed to the book of Judah. Now, do you remember the nation of Israel was known as God's covenant people? But after Solomon, there was a dispute (coughs) and that nation broke off into two nations, kind of like We did in the Civil War for a short period of time, but then it was restored. It wasn't ever restored in Israel. You had Judah and and, uh, Benjamin in the south that made up the nation of Judah. And then the other ten tribes were in the north known as Israel, the northern kingdom. Sometimes in the north, it's just called Ephraim. Ephraim was one of the tribes of Israel. Of Israel, and so it was a prominent tribe. And sometimes you'll see in the Old Testament, we'll see it in the book of Isaiah, where God speaks to Ephraim and he's speaking to all the ten tribes in the north. And that may be helpful to know. So God is speaking to Judah, he's speaking to the covenant people of God. Judah, what what, was Israel still the covenant people of God? Yes, but it was kind of like they were on hold. So Judah, he's talking to Judah. Second issue I want to briefly address is a follow-up on something that I said last week. Isaiah was written to God's covenant people as a group, as a unit, as an entire nation as it was in that time. That doesn't mean that there is nothing there for us as individuals to, uh, to, 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 to be able to claim from the book of Isaiah, my goodness, some of the m- most encouraging verses anywhere in Scripture are found in the book of Isaiah. And it's, it, 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 it's, it's just filled with comforting and encouraging words for troubled souls. Furthermore, unless individuals uh, were to respond to God's call to repent and believe, all God's people were heading for judgment. And the same is true for us today. The reason that I emphasize the covenant aspect of God's promises 
to the group of God's people, to the whole of God's people, is so that you will not make the mistake of thinking that God didn't keep his promises to you when troubles threaten to overwhelm you. Isaiah 43, 2 says, When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame will not consume you. When he said that, he was speaking to the nation as a whole. In fact, he was speaking to the nation that would be one day in captivity, and he was speaking as if they were already in captivity. I, 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 you know, one of the, the favorite verses you hear people talk about, Jeremiah 29, what's the verse? Uh, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans of peace, prosperity, not for bad, not for good, I mean, not for evil, but for good. He was talking to a group of people who was in captivity and would be there for 70 years. So we can't just, and I'm just saying, don't pull a verse out and claim it. And then when things go badly, say, well, God must not have kept this promise. It must, or either something's wrong with me or something's wrong with God. No, there's something wrong with our understanding about how it was written. So the, the, the promises are written to the whole. Look, when he says... You'll go through the fire and not be burned. I'm sure Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego rejoiced in this promise. But you remember what they said before, before they went in. They said, our God's able to deliver, but whether he does or not, we're not bowing down to that statue. So they didn't assume that God would deliver them, although they knew that he was able to. I'm sure, though, there were people that read that promise who were in Jerusalem when... Babylon conquered the city and went through horrors. If you want to know about the horrors, look at the book of Lamentations. That's Jeremiah speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem by the nation of Babylon. Jesus did not, Jesus said, first of all, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But he didn't say the gates of hell will not prevail against the American church, he didn't even say the gates of hell will not prevail against Grace Community Church. We all know churches that were great at one time, but just slowly died an agonizing and painful death. And they're no longer in existence. So will God be with you when you walk through the fire? Yes, he will. You can freely apply the promise of God's presence with you, no matter what you face. Might you get burned if you walk through the fire? Even though you did nothing to deserve the trial or the fire? You may. But the gospel will advance. The church will prevail. And even if you die in the flames as many martyrs have done before you. God will be faithful and will be with you through it all. I, I just, look, I, I don't know too many stories um, about martyrs, but I'm guessing that a lot of them were just like Stephen. I see the Son of God standing at the right hand of the throne of God, and they stoned him. They went crazy. They stoned him. But Stephen was already seeing Jesus. If we come to that place received a, 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 a little magazine this weekend about the 50 countries where the persecution is the greatest. Just thinking about all the people who give their lives for the gospel all over the world, not just in the early church days, but now who give their lives. And if God calls any of us to go somewhere or even if he brings this persecution one day... <coughs> 
in our land. He will be with us when we walk through the fire. That's going to be significant as we think about the message of Isaiah 1. Isaiah 1 has 31 verses in it. The message today will be a pattern for many of the messages in the series. Now look, there's a lot more introducing to do. Probably be doing it all the way through this series. I'm going to read a few key verses in just a moment. Then I'll briefly comment on more verses. Uh, but then at the end there will be be offering principles from the entire chapter. So we'll just cover it that way. It'll be a, a, a pattern for, for a lot of these uh, messages. And, and one of the things I want to do is it, just to provide tools for you in case you want to go deeper into the text, and I sincerely hope that you will. So today, we're going to be reading from Isaiah 1, 16 to 20, although the entire uh, chapter is the text. So would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? God says to His people, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, <clears throat> seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray. Father, um, many of the words that we read today will be difficult words. And in, in fact, even, even as I'm reading these words, my heart is drawn to the, to the beautiful things that you say about us in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, and Colossians 1 and 2, and about our position in Christ and how much brighter that is, knowing the darkness of our hearts apart from Jesus. So Lord, may we recognize the benefit early on as we are in Isaiah of seeing these difficult things that are so often true about us and need attention. But may we do so with the, with the, the, the encouragement uh, of our relationship with Jesus prominent in our minds. He, the one who did for us Lord, what we are utterly incapable of doing. So even as we are, look in Isaiah 1 and think a fair amount about judgment, may we see Jesus exalted in our eyes and in our midst. For we pray in his name. Amen. Thanks and be seated. And so we stick our toes into the edge of the waters, of the deep waters of the book of Isaiah's vision. Uh, the term vision implies a special revelation from God. God gave him something to understand, but it also Im implies uh, and indicates an ability to discern truth. Even before Isaiah was called in, in Isaiah 6, as we'll read about in several weeks, um, he understood that something was bad wrong with the relationship between God and his people. 
Even though we're not quite sure where the first five chapters of Isaiah fit in the timeline of his ministry during the four, the reigns of the four kings that are mentioned in Isaiah 1.1, Isaiah 1 is a fitting introduction to the entire book that will tell of pending judgment, but also of promised restoration. <coughs> the indictment begins quickly. Animals, and not particularly bright animals like oxen and donkeys. You know, he's, he, he's picking out some dumb animals and saying, look, they have sense enough to know who they belong to and what their responsibilities are. But the people that I created and called and, and, and have given all of my blessings to have no idea. They've utterly forgotten who created them, who sustains them, who has every right to expect their trust and obedience. The people wanted autonomy. They wanted to be their own bosses. They wanted to set their own schedules. And they wanted to be their own negotiators when trouble comes. You know that feeling, don't you? We all want to be in charge of our lives. Would you rather drive or ride? Exactly. <clears throat> Allison thinks the Lord gave her a crazy person to drive her around. But I'm going to drive. I just want to drive. I do. I keep saying, you know, well, hey, I'll let you drive this stretch. And then I end up, I just, I just like to be right there, you know. And I want to be in control. The problem is we are not autonomous beings. No matter how rugged, how industrious, or how independent we are, our next Breath is dependent upon our Creator. What are your plans? How are you going to change the world? Your next breath is dependent upon your Creator. In describing the state of the people's heart, God used several descriptors. There are three primary descriptions of sin that He uses in Isaiah. But I'm going to add a bunch of the resulting actions as we think about it. Ah! Oh, Sinful nation. Ah, could be translated, whoa. Ah, sinful nation. A people loaded down with iniquity. Offspring of evildoers. Children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Now the Lord's assessment of His people... The people of Judah was apparently shocking news to them. They had open wounds that had not been treated. They were fine in their own way of thinking and had done nothing to address the open sores. The indication is they didn't even know they had sores all over their bodies. If you see somebody with open sores all over his or her body, what are you thinking? Like, man, come on, take care of that. Either you don't know or you're just too dumb to care. You, you don't even know that you have it seems to be the indication here. Fortunately for us, since we have the same disease as the people of Judah, we will learn in Isaiah 53 that God's servant, Jesus, would bear our iniquities and heal our wounds. That's good news. But 
the bad news continues for a bit in Isaiah 1, verse 7. Now, these verses following here seem to indicate that Isaiah was written at a time when Judah was under attack. attack. And even though Jerusalem <laughs> had not been conquered uh, and defeated, some of the cities in the land of Judah were under <laughs> attack. Most likely, the attack being referred to here came from an alliance between Aram or Syria and Israel. Uh, they were worried about Assyria. Now look, I've been talking with David. We're, we're trying to find some maps. Sometimes I look at a map and I'm like, well, okay. I think I care enough to try to figure this out, but it's just complicated. So I want to find stuff that, that, that is somewhat easy to understand. But if you think of Assyria... Uh, being over here, this, the, the capital of uh, Assyria was uh, Nineveh, which is modern-day Mosul, Iraq. We've heard a lot about Mosul, uh, Iraq. And, and their kingdom extended high to the north, and it was trying to come around down low on Israel and Syria. They were kind of right here, Israel and Syria, and Judah was down here. Now, Judah's thinking... Israel and Syria, that's a pretty good buffer. You know, Assyria's got to come over them to get to us. Uh, and so, that's, I'm kind of glad to have that. So, Assyria, I mean, excuse me, Israel and Aram, or Syria, said to Judah, Hey, tell you what, why don't we all join up together? Here's a good idea. Let's all join up together and we can fight Assyria. And Judah's like, oh, no, no. You go ahead. Hope the fight goes well for you guys. But we're kind of shielded and there's no reason for us to get in. We're just liable to make them mad. We don't want to make them mad. Well, you can imagine Israel and Syria said, we don't like that. And so they started to attack Judah. And now Judah is constantly, they're talking to other countries and saying, hey, can you come over here and help us? We need to fight these guys. And God's saying, and this is, this is going to happen over and over and over in the book of Isaiah. The Lord is saying, quit looking to help outside. I'm enough for you. I'll take care of you. Just trust me. Trust me. It, but Lord, look at the odds against us. We've got to do something. Just trust me. So again, look, there are plenty of more, plenty more alliances in this book that uh, I, I, as we go, I'll try to explain them when I can determine how to best explain them in ways that will make sense to you. But understand uh, this issue, and it's, it, it feels complex, but it's pretty simple. <clears throat> the people of Judah were, as a nation, the covenant people of God. Now, again, all of Israel had enjoyed that designation earlier, but the northern kingdom had broken off. Here's a clue, by the way. When you're reading Kings, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, and you've got kings in Israel and kings in Judah, and some were good, some were evil. All the kings in the north, bad. Every single one of them. They had just a few little oh, times where they were listening to the Lord, but they would quickly turn. All the kings, not, not all the kings in Judah were bad. Some were good, some were very good. In fact, the three of the four that are listed in Isaiah were relatively good. Um, Uzziah, Jotham, 
And Hezekiah were all good. Ahaz was bad. And then after Hezekiah, really bad. Manasseh, one of the worst. But in the north, none of the kings were good. They had broken away from the covenant promises of God. They were worried if people went to Jerusalem, <coughs> that they would rebel against their leadership. So they set up altars and idols all over the north. Now the people in, in the south, though, enjoy God's protection as the covenant people of God. Yahweh wanted his people to trust him when they, they were threatened by armies from other nations. But the people were living in the world just like you and I do, and they were trying to take care of themselves. It'd be very difficult for us to do any differently than they did. In fact, we don't do differently, do we? We form political alliances with people who do not believe as we believe about Jesus, that he was the servant of God who died for our sins. We, we tend, both as individuals and believers, <coughs> to very quickly become dependent on social and cultural and political structures to provide meaning and pleasure, and most of all, and easiest to defend, safety. I mean, look, we got to take care of our kids and our grandchildren, right? So make those alliances. Even so, the church lies as a shell of what it once was, the church in America. Um, I, I, look, I wasn't going to explain this. There's so much in it. There's so much that you learn as you study in preparation for this that you just don't have time to see. But like uh, verse 8, the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. When people would harvest their crops, Sometimes the crops were a long way off and they didn't have time to be back and forth every day walking or riding a mule, you know, back and forth to the, to the land. So they would build these little temporary lean-tos. That may have been what was happening in the book of Ruth. Boaz, you know, had one of those lean-tos. And then after the harvest was over, they just left. They didn't tear it down necessarily, but just think of how bedraggled these things looked. I mean, it served a huge purpose during harvest, but after harvest, it's like, it's useless and really an eyesore. And God is saying, this is what my people have become. They're useless. But fortunately, as God said about Judah in verse 9, which I don't believe is going to be up there, the Lord has his remnant. So after comparing Judah and particularly the leaders of Judah to Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 10, the Lord levels a frightening indictment against his people in verse 11. One of the reasons that people felt like they were doing so well was that they gave great attention to the religious details associated with worshiping Yahweh. John Oswald says this, they maximized the physical while minimizing the spiritual. He goes on to say that it was very easy with the established concept, continuing concept of, uh, of sacrifice to, to believe that the physical accomplished the spiritual. So in other words, when your sins were put on that animal, and the throat was cut or the scapegoat was sent away into the wilderness. You literally, it's like 
All of my sins are there and they're gone forever. But like that reader of Hebrews says, we always knew that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. That's why Jesus was necessary. So, so when you think about what we learn in our study of the soul, is nothing has really changed, has it? We do the physical and we think the spiritual is being accomplished. Ex opere operata. <clears throat> By the work accomplished. In other words, if you follow the right religious rituals, you will be saved no matter how you live. Doesn't matter. Just do the right thing. Just go to church, give your tithes, enjoy the Lord's Supper, do your Bible studies. And we do those things, but we're so full of ourselves. And thus, we live in ways that benefit ourselves at the expense of others. And the Lord says, you know what? All that stuff you're doing, not impressive at all. In verses 15 and following, God says that the nation's sins extended beyond dependent on alliances to ensure their safety. The people were securing the good life for themselves while others in the covenant family were suffering, either through neglect or, as it seems to be indicated, through rampant injustice. And leaders are always held especially accountable when there is injustice in the land or when there is injustice in the church. So you guys who are going to be deacons, elders, all of you elders, deacons, this is a hard word for us. But it's a hard word for all of us. But it's a good word to remember. What are we doing? Are we just playing at this thing or not? Look, if you've been here for any length of time, I hope you understand that's our desire. Not to just play at, 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 at this church life, this Christianity. It's all or nothing. Do we live like that? Of course not. Do we mess up? Yes, of course. When the Lord says the requirements for an elder and the deacons are very similar, he must, first thing he says is he must be above reproach. Well, then, you know, that almost knocks everybody out at some level. But our desire is to live like the people of God that we are, that he has called us to be. And when we fail, what do we do? Repent and then trust God. Even though... God's charges against the people uh, were severe. The point was always, always restoration. God calls his people to repentance and to holy living. Uh, in fact, Isaiah, you know what his name means? Yahweh saves. Yesterday, it was a day of magazines at our house. Uh, got Modern Reformation. Michael Horton, you've heard that name many times. Michael Horton. Is the editor-in-chief of um, Modern Reformation. And the theme of this issue is this. God saves is the theme of the Bible. So in many ways, that's exactly what we're studying. Isaiah, Yahweh saves. Wash yourselves. Points to baptism in the New Testament. You can't believe how many things in the Old Testament point to the New Testament. In fact, this notion... It's called the baptism of repentance. In Acts 13, 24, looking back to the, to the ministry of, of John the Baptist. So much of the Old Testament prepares us for the truth that culminated in Jesus. 
when you see the term, and I just put this in this morning because, again, there are just so many things I had to choose to leave out, but I put it back in. It's too important. Uh, we see the term in Isaiah, the Lord of hosts. Whenever you see uh, Lord in all caps, what is it meaning? Yahweh. It's, it's given the covenant. And Yahweh is the covenant. It's a, it's a name that God uses in dealings with his covenant people. So it, it's kind of like I'm father to those of you who trust Jesus. I am your God. I am Yahweh, he said to the people of Israel. And he said, the Lord of hosts or Yahweh of hosts. When you see it as you do in, in Isaiah 1.9, it's a term that points to God's multifaceted gloriousness. And as Alec Montier says, it indicates that God is not a bare unit, but within his own nature, a host with every possible potentiality and power. And he goes on to say that such descriptions of God prepare our hearts for understanding God as the Trinity. We face the same struggles, though, that the Judeans did uh, in our understanding of God and his ways. So back to wash yourselves and be clean. Baptism, as we understand it in the New Testament, does not save us any more than the feast and the fast of the people of Judah saved them. So their problem was they were doing all these rituals and they thought, okay, checked it off, I'm good. And God said, no, you're not. Because there's no faith with your practice of these rituals. When we believe, though, these rituals have great meaning for us. It is crucial. We have we partake of the Lord's Supper twice a month, and it's crucial that we not take this for granted, but that we recognize everything that it implies in our relationship with the Lord. Without faith, it doesn't mean anything. With faith, it's spiritual nourishment for us. Isn't that really, in addition, good works follow genuine faith. And isn't that the message of Scripture? When God calls in verse 18 his people to reason together, he's not calling for a meeting to work things out. Look, if you're a parent of small children, you say things like, honey, this is not a discussion. Okay, that's what he, God means. We're going to reason together and you're going to listen to my reason and obey or else there will be consequences. That's the sense of God's call in Isaiah 118. When we are well advised to listen and believe, how can our sins be cleansed? We're told in the New Testament only through the blood of Jesus. Our inability to keep the law is only fatal when we fail to look to the one who lived the law perfectly and took our punishment dying in our place. It may be Isaiah 1 today, but Isaiah 53 is coming. We'll close in a very few moments with, with an awesome quote from C.S. Lewis in, in Mere Christianity. It beautifully describes the focus and point of Isaiah 1. But before we do, 
I want to offer seven principles given in this text for application. Now, <clears throat> you know that I don't have a lot of time. I'm trying to give enough time to write them down if, if you so desire or take a picture, you know, when they get all up there. I, I, but it, there won't be much time for development. If you're in home group this week, though, you'll talk about this a lot. So first, God has given himself fully to his people and he expects his people to give themselves fully to him. He rightly expects us to give ourselves fully to him. Now, isn't that what Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2? Based on all that God has done for you, that we've learned about in the first 11 chapters of Romans, based on all of that, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Second, the false appearance of relationship is more dangerous than no relationship at all. If you don't know what your problem is, you can't do anything about it. This is the picture that God presented through Isaiah's prophecy. <coughs> Once again, we find it so true in our churches today. You may have the appearance of being religious, but your good works can never make you righteous. Only through repentance and faith will any of us find life. When we think we are well, but we are deathly sick, we are in far more trouble than when we acknowledge our sickness. You all know somebody, don't you? Found out they were sick on Monday? Died on Friday? You've heard of those things, or at least within a week or two? It's shocking, and you don't even know. And maybe if you knew... Some, some cancers don't reveal themselves to a relatively healthy person until it's way down the road. And there's great advantage of being told, look, you've, there's something you need to know. There's something you need to deal with. Third, strength of any kind is insufficient in the day of God's wrath. It is hard to believe in our technological age that God's wrath has any say in our lives now or in the future. But deep down, I think most people are at least a bit concerned. Do you think that God sits in the heavens and laughs at man's pursuit of immortality? When they say things like, hey, we're going to conquer death. Machine and man will become one. I think he does. Psalm 2 reminds us, as does Isaiah 1, that the wrath of God is nothing to ignore. And make your plans, but God will have the final say. How might we expect God's blessing rather than wrath? John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Who, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. By the way, just in case you're, you're thinking about all of this, life doesn't work this way. Scripture does not let us think that life works this way. That I'm okay as long as I don't mess up. That's the default position. People say, I'm all right. I'm not, I'm not a bad person. I'm certainly not as bad as, you know, some of these guys over here, some, some of the people in my neighborhood. I'm a, I'm a good person, and if I don't mess it up too badly, I'm, no. The default position is that we are all under God's wrath, and until we know Jesus, we remain under God's wrath. But knowing Jesus completely 
takes God's wrath out of the equation because it fell on him. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Isaiah, for goodness sakes. Isaiah. Fourth, since God knows that we are dust and that we will fail, he has made a way through Jesus for us to be holy, to be fully restored to him. Is there a more encouraging text in all of Scripture than Psalm 103? Romans 5, verses 6 through 11, tell us how a holy and just God can forgive sinful man. Really, all the first five chapters of, of Romans tell us that. But it's sort of a, a summary there toward the end of Romans 5. Look, Psalm 103, let me get back to that just a minute. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sins from us. He treats us like a father. He's patient with us. He knows that we're dust. If you're going through a dark time, and I know, I know it is without question that many of you are. I, I hear occasionally, rarely on a, on a text like Isaiah 1 do I hear, wow, preacher, you are talking right to me. How did you know all this stuff? We don't, we're not uh, owning up to that. But whenever... I talk about trials and God's comfort. Lots of people say, oh, that spoke to me. I know many of you are going through a difficult time. Can I suggest something? And this is so out of character for me and my understanding of the word. I don't usually encourage this because we, we have to be careful not to be too familiar with God. But God is our Father. So if you're really struggling, get alone sometime this week with your Bible. Close your eyes and just imagine yourself crawling up into the lap of the Lord. Let him put his arms around you. With your Bible already open to Psalm 103, then open your eyes and read that text. And just let your heavenly Father love on you. Next, unless God cleanses us from our sin, we will not be clean. Now, in Isaiah, the message is, wash yourselves. In the New Testament, we're told very clearly. In fact, we're told in Isaiah, we, can't, we can never wash ourselves clean. We cannot clean ourselves. How can our sins, though they are scarlet, be as white as snow? Oddly enough, through the deep red blood of Jesus Christ. Put your trust in Jesus, not in your ability to clean up your life. That's what some of you are waiting on. When I clean up my life, I'll get serious. No, just come to the Lord and say, this is who I am. Repent and trust him. Sixth, humility leads to repentance and faith and thus to life. Pride leads to destruction and death. You may think, you may think of destruction and death as the same thing. But a lot of people's lives have been destroyed long before they die. The practice of religion without faith only makes people proud. Only in humility will we come to the repentance, come in repentance to the foot of the cross. Ask God to make you humble. And when you're humble, then you start looking around you and you see the needs of people that 
but you've not seen them before. And you say, who am I? I mean, we, all, of, all of life seems to be, especially for people in the essential socioeconomic group that most of us are in, we, we just think of life as just kind of, it's, it's laid out for us. We just need to take advantage of our opportunities and need to be, and part of that is you don't spend too much time associating with people that you consider beneath you or for whatever reason are not blessed. Well, how do we get those kind of thoughts in our heads? Humility brings us to taking care of the fatherless and the poor that Isaiah talks about over and over and over. Primarily, first, now notice this, first and foremost, the covenant people of God. That's another reason we have to understand this is written to the covenant people of God. We have to take care of our own as believers, but then go well beyond that in caring for people who desperately need our care. So ask God. Only in humility will we come to the Lord in repentance to the foot of the cross. Ask God to make you humble. Last of all, it is never too late to repent until it is. Hebrews 9.27 is a stern warning. It is appointed to die once. And after that comes judgment. But verse 28 is great news. It says for those who, who believe, Jesus will return not to judge, but to save. That's a great word to end this part of the sermon. And I've only got one more thing. It's, it's, it's Lewis's quote from Mere Christianity. Gives a helpful explanation for why it's necessary to hear these stern words of warning and judgment such as Isaiah has shared. So we're going to close with, with Lewis's <coughs> reflections. And he's talking to people who may, may be considering Christianity or need to be considering uh, what Scripture says about the gospel. Quote, here's, here, here's Lewis, quote, Christianity tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. So Scripture tells you repent and then you'll be forgiven. It therefore has nothing, as far as I know, to say to people who do not know that they have done anything to repent of and who do not feel they need any forgiveness. It is after you have realized, and remember, he's talking to people who are just considering the claims of Christianity, not even to, to, to the point of Christ yet. And he's pointed out so far in, in the book that, that people all, we all know that there's something, there's a law that is bigger than ourselves. In fact, how, how, how can you judge anybody else if there's no law, if there's no law that's bigger than all of us? Um, there has to be. So it is after you have realized that there is a real moral law and a power behind that law. And that you have broken that law and put yourself wrong with that power. It is after all this and not a moment sooner that Christianity begins to talk. When you know you are sick, you will listen to the doctor. All I am doing is to ask people to face the facts. To understand the questions which Christianity claims to answer. And they are very terrifying facts. I wish it was possible to say something more agreeable, but I must say what I think true. And then this, it closes this way. Of course, 
I quite agree that the Christian religion is, in the long run, a thing of unspeakable comfort. But it does not begin in comfort. It begins in the dismay I have been describing. And it is of no use at all trying to go on to that comfort without first going through that dismay. In religion, as in war and everything else, comfort is the one thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort at the end. If you look for comfort, you will not only, you will not get either comfort or truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with and in the end, despair. So as we go through the book of Isaiah, don't think, oh man, here we go, this is tough. Look, all of this was written, remember 1 Corinthians 10, 11, for our instruction. There are things that we need to hear. There are, th- there are blind spots that we have that we need the Lord to reveal to us. <clears throat> so that we will be those gracious, godly men and women of God that He's called us to be. Don't you know somebody that just exudes the fragrance of Christ? Don't you wish you were like that? Isaiah is going to help us get to that place. Let's pray. Today is the last Sunday of the month, and so we take our benevolence offering, which indeed is designed to help those first within the body who are in need and then outside the body. Sometimes you have connections. You know of someone who needs extra help. Go to our deacons. Right now it's Stephen Eisenberg, Matt uh, Damaris, and Jeremy Pittman who are heading up the benevolence portion of our ministry. But also, this is our opportunity to extend the love of Christ to those who don't know Jesus, out, who are outside of our body. So I just would encourage you um, to give generously this benevolence offering. Father, um, we come to you today acknowledging that, uh, Lord, we are clean through the blood of Christ. Those who have trusted Jesus have no fear of wrath or judgment. And yet, there are times where our feet get dirty, just like Jesus. <laughs> when he washed the disciples' feet, and Peter said, wash my whole body then, if, I, if I, that's required to be with you. Jesus said, no, those who are clean only need to have their feet washed. Lord, in the same way, there are things that have popped up in our lives, attitudes, our dependence on worldly powers and politics rather than trusting you, the sovereign God who brings all things into our lives for his glory and our good, even the things that seem bad to us. Lord, may we be a people that seeks, seeks after you, Lord, that, that longs to know your pleasure in our lives. We thank you for Jesus, what he has done for us. And now in this opportunity we have to to, to share the love of Christ with others, we pray you'll bless this offering and all the ministry of Grace Community Church. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Our benediction comes from Isaiah 43 today. Uh, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Go in peace. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.